Welcome back to the Great Decisions Podcast, the one place where you will find unbiased and politically untainted news and commentary about world affairs and U.S. foreign policy. All views and opinions in this podcast are my own and not necessarily those of the Foreign Policy Association or program sponsors. Any errors or omissions are my own. To help us to continue to bring quality presentations to you, we ask that you register. There's no cost or obligation in so doing. However, it does allow us to notify you when the next podcast is uploaded. Depending on the platform that you use, this involves a click on the follow or subscribe icon. In our previous broadcast, I explained the importance of having an underlying framework or worldview upon which to base American foreign policy. Without a conceptualization of the world and the way it works, our policies are adrift, our allies are uncertain, and our adversaries are emboldened. There are many reasons that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, one of which was a sense that the United States no longer felt committed to global order and security. Indeed, any review of our foreign policy since the Cold War ended would reveal a stunning level of inconsistency, contradictions, and backtracking. This is the result of an America without an underlying framework for its foreign policy. As noted in the earlier podcast, there are four different worldviews for us to consider. Each paints a picture of the world and instructs us how to seek out opportunities and confront challenges. I explained the first worldview, liberal internationalism, its assumptions, policy prescriptions, and track record in the first podcast. If you've not done so, I suggest that you listen to that podcast before starting this one. Today we consider an alternative foreign policy approach. Beginning with the alter ego of liberalism, a philosophy called political realism. While the liberal perspective dates to the late 18th century, realpolitik's origins are found in the 5th century before Christ through the writings of Thucydides, a retired Athenian general whose observations about the Peloponnesian War reflect the theory. Thucydides noted that it was the rise of Athenian power that struck fear in the heart of the Spartans. In a nutshell, this is political realism. Nation-states grow at a differential rate. They become imbalanced. That causes global instability. Like all worldviews, realism is based upon a set of assumptions that can neither be proven nor disproven. They're simply taken as a matter of fact. Assumption number one is that human nature is inherently bad. People, and thus countries, are self-serving, self-interested, and egotistical. People are hardwired for conflict. You can't educate them out of their nature. Perhaps you've heard the parable of the turtle and the scorpion. The turtle meandered down to the river, about to step in and swim to the other side, when he heard a small voice. He looked to his left and to his right, and then noticed a scorpion. The scorpion said, Mr. Turtle, can I climb upon the back of your shell and ride across to the other side of the river? The currents are too strong. They'll carry me away if I try it without your help. The turtle said, are you crazy? 
You're a scorpion. If you sting me, I'll drown. Yes, said the scorpion, but if you drowned, I drowned with you. The turtle contemplated this for a moment and decided it was okay to let the scorpion ride upon his shell. The scorpion crawled up. He began to go across the river. About halfway across, the turtle felt the pinch of the sting of the scorpion. And as he was growing numb and about to go under the water level, the turtle looked back and said, Why, scorpion? Why? The scorpion simply replied, Eh, it's in my nature. There's an old saying in realism, there are no permanent allies, only permanent interest. You can never trust another. Assumption number two, countries are always trying to increase their military power, making the key feature of world politics the struggle for power. Building large militaries, invading neighbors to take their land, resources, and power. Assumption number three, Anarchy reigns supreme. Anarchy does not mean chaos. It means there is no overarching, supranational controlling force. Not international law, not international organizations, or religious institutions. Countries are on their own in a constant struggle for survival. Assumption number four is that war is the normal state of affairs. This is not a surprising assumption given the first three I've just outlined. Clausewitz famously stated, war is a policy by other means. It's not that the realists want war or go out of their way to start an armed conflict. Rather, they expect it. According to the realists, there are only three stages in a nation's life. You're either preparing for war, fighting war, or recovering from war. Civis pacum parabellum. The Latin phrase means, if you want peace, prepare for war. So what sorts of policies do the realists prescribe? Number one, build up your military capabilities in order to deter an invasion from another country. Form military alliances to deter war by very powerful states. Think, for example, about NATO here. Prescription number three, wage war if you expect to win and to gain in territory, resources, prestige, or security. A principal criticism of realism is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Take, for example, the security dilemma. Two nations, country A and country B, view each other with great suspicion, expecting to be invaded by the other. Neither wants war. Country A builds up its military to deter an attack. Country B sees this and is alarmed, assuming that country A is preparing to invade. So country B, quite rationally, builds up its military. Country A sees this and assumes the worst, so it builds up even more military power. On and on they go into an arms race. Fear begins to build, the chances of war increase, that's the security dilemma, where two rational actors, neither wanting war, increase the likelihood of armed conflict in pursuit of security. When we considered Wilsonian or liberal internationalism in podcast one, there were only two U.S. presidents in more than a century, Woodrow Wilson and Jimmy Carter, who adopted the idealist perspective. 
We could add Franklin Delano Roosevelt to that short list. His ideas about the United Nations reflect liberalism, great power cooperation, international free trade, law, diplomacy, and democracy, hallmarks of the liberal framework. We have no shortage of foreign policy makers and U.S. presidents who are labeled realist. Most American leaders since World War II, rightly or wrongly, executed a realpolitik foreign policy, both Republicans and Democrats. Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, the senior George Bush on the right, Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson on the left. There is, however, a very important divide among U.S. realist presidents. Pure realist on the one hand and crusaders on the other. A pure realist is someone who only focuses on military capabilities among the great powers. A crusading realist, on the other hand, adds a moral edge to his or her assessment of other countries. Most American realpolitik presidents have been crusaders. They viewed the Soviet Union as an existential threat to the U.S. and its allies, but also as an ideological threat. They spoke about the Soviet Union as a godless country, consistent with communism. They spoke of the dark side, a force of evil, and an entity condemned to the ash heap of history. By focusing our containment policy not only on the Soviet Union, but on the Communist International, many U.S. presidents fell into a unified bloc assumption. A communist is a communist is a communist. They're joined at the hip and work in concert against the U.S. and the West because of their common ideology. Any victory by any communist nation translates to a victory from Moscow. Classic or pure realists only consider military power which allows them to see opportunities to play one communist nation against another. Not so for the messianic or crusading realist. To them, communist countries are inseparable. To demonstrate the devastating effects of the crusading approach to realism, let's look at America's involvement in the Vietnam War. From 1964 until 1973, the U.S. poured resources and young soldiers into the conflict in Southeast Asia. More than 58,000 Americans died in the conflict. Why did they do so? Because of the unified bloc assumption of the crusading realist. They assumed that there was a direct line connecting Moscow, Beijing, and Hanoi. They were, after all, communist and therefore must think alike. If North Vietnam, which was communist, prevails over South Vietnam, the calculation was it would be a major victory for China and the Soviet Union. Therefore, we weren't fighting for the sovereign integrity of South Vietnam. Rather, the war was part of the global struggle against the Soviet Union and its communist allies. Lose there and the communist world would press their advantage and move on to places like Indonesia, the Philippines, or India. This is called the domino theory. If one non-communist nation falls, all those lined up after it will fall as well. So we stayed, we fought, and we lost precious lives in the rice paddies of Vietnam. A pure realist would have looked at the picture completely differently. 
Rather than seeing a unified communist bloc pressing southward, pure realists see a classic regional power struggle. China and the Soviet Union are not joined at the hip by a common ideology. They can be separated if one begins to approach the other in terms of power. The same goes for North Vietnam. It would no longer be the ally of China if it rose in power, according to pure realism. Beijing would see the rise of power to the south as a direct threat. In other words, the pure realist would say, if North Vietnam defeats the south, its power level goes up and China will confront it. Thus, there's no need for Americans to get involved in the war. Were the pure realists right? History says so. After losing the war, the United States withdrew from Vietnam. A few years later, a more powerful, unified Vietnam invaded neighboring Cambodia and Laos. Did China celebrate the march of communism? No, it invaded Vietnam. From the end of World War II until the late 1960s, American presidents, realists, infused the freedom versus communism dyad into their calculations. The results were suboptimal foreign policies, most notably in Vietnam. In 1968, Richard Nixon was elected president. He and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, relied upon a pure realist calculation in their construction and execution of U.S. foreign policy. China and the Soviet Union were no longer considered as a unified opposing force. Rather, they were viewed as separate great powers, legitimate global actors that deserved respect for their power levels, but with distinct interest and differential growth rates. Until Nixon, American presidents had recognized the island of Taiwan as the representative of all of China, on the island and on the mainland, even though the communists had won control of the mainland in 1949. Playing the China card was only possible from a classic or pure realist perspective. First Kissinger and then Nixon visited mainland China and met with Mao, its communist leader. Gaining global recognition was more important to Beijing than advancing the Communist International or its alliance with the Soviet Union. And Nixon needed a more favorable relationship with China to create space between the two communist giants. The price that Nixon was willing to pay was the island of Taiwan. The Shanghai Communique of 1972 stated, There is but one China, and Taiwan is part of China with unification occurring through peaceful means. This conciliatory stance on China served to put pressure on Moscow, which suddenly was worried about being left on the wrong side of the balance of power. Nixon followed up with a visit to Moscow to secure a series of critically important nuclear arms agreements with the Soviet Union. The era of detente ensued, whereby tensions between the major powers were reduced. This is how a classic realist approaches the world. A laser focus on power levels of the major states, not letting ideology, type of government, economic system, or religion cloud the picture. We've now examined two of our four foreign policy perspectives. Liberal internationalism, with its emphasis on democratization, capitalism, free trade, 
international laws and organization in pursuit of a world with less conflict, respect for human rights and prosperity, and political realism, which argues history really does not progress in a positive trajectory. Nation-states are trapped in constant struggles for supremacy and conflict. The only way to secure the nation is to build up military power. These two worldviews, standing as polar opposites in terms of underlying assumptions and policy prescriptions, represent the historically most popular approaches for American presidents. From World War II until the end of the 1900s, our presidents were really only classified as liberals or realists. All of that changed with the terror attacks on 9-11, when a new foreign policy perspective emerged, neoconservatism, and then again in 2016 with the election of Donald J. Trump, the America First perspective became quite popular. In our next podcast, we consider these new entries into the competition for leading foreign policy perspective, first the neocons and then the America Firsters. Until then, stay engaged and make great decisions.